Section 36 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller. Translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Subheading 34. Doctrine of the Catholics on the Most Holy Sacrament of the Altar and on the Mass. The mighty subject, which is now to engage our attention, gave birth to the most important controversies between the Christian communions. All the other distinctive doctrines are here combined, though in a more eminent degree, for although, as has been clearly shown in every point of difference, the whole system of doctrine is mirrored forth, yet here this is more especially the case. On the view, too, which we take of this subject, depends the fact whether the Church be destined to possess a true and vital worship, or ought to be devoid of one. According to the clear declarations of Christ and his apostles, and the unanimous teaching of the Church, attested by the immediate followers of our Lord's disciples, Catholics firmly hold that in the sacrament of the altar Christ is truly present, and indeed in such a way that Almighty God, who was pleased at Cana in Galilee to convert water into wine, changes the inward substance of the consecrated bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. We therefore adore the Savior mysteriously present in the sacrament, rejoice in his exceeding condescending compassion, and express, in canticles of praise and thanksgiving, our pious emotions, as far as the divinely enraptured soul of man can express them. Out of this faith sprung the Mass, which, in its essential purport, is as old as the Church, and even in its more important forms can be proved to have been already in existence in the second and third centuries. But to unfold more clearly the Catholic doctrine on this point, it is necessary to anticipate somewhat of our reflections on the Church. The Church, considered in one point of view, is the living figure of Christ, manifesting himself and working through all ages, whose atoning and redeeming acts it, in consequence, eternally repeats and uninterruptedly continues. The Redeemer not merely lived 1,800 years ago, so that he has since disappeared, and we retain but a historical remembrance of him, as of a deceased man, but he is, on the contrary, eternally living in his church, and in the sacrament of the altar he hath manifested this in a sensible manner to creatures endowed with sense. He is, in the announcement of his word, the abiding teacher, in baptism, he perpetually receives the children of men into his communion. In the tribunal of penance, he pardons the contrite sinner, strengthens rising youth with the power of his spirit in confirmation, breathes into the bridegroom and the bride a higher conception of the nuptial relations, unites himself most intimately with all who sigh for eternal life under the forms of bread and wine, consoles the dying in extreme unction, and in holy orders institutes the organs whereby he worketh all this with never-tiring activity. If Christ, concealed under an earthly veil, unfolds to the end of time his whole course of actions begun on earth, he of necessity eternally offers himself to the Father as a victim for men, and the real permanent exposition hereof can never fail in the Church if the historical Christ is to celebrate in her his entire imperishable existence. The following may perhaps serve to explain the Catholic view on this subject, since it is a matter of so much difficulty to Protestants 
to form a clear conception of this dogma. Christ on the cross has offered the sacrifice for our sins, but the incarnate Son of God, who hath suffered, died, and risen again from the dead for our sins, being according to his own teaching, present in the Eucharist, the church from the beginning hath, at his command, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, substituted the Christ mysteriously present and visible only to the spiritual eye of faith for the historical Christ now inaccessible to the corporal senses. The former is taken for the latter because the latter is likewise the former. Both are considered as one and the same, and the Eucharistic Savior, therefore, as the victim also for the sins of the world, and more so as, when we wish to express ourselves accurately, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is put only as a part for an organic whole. For his whole life on earth, his ministry and his sufferings, as well as his perpetual condescension to our infirmity in the Eucharist, constitute one great sacrificial act, one mighty action undertaken out of love for us, an expiatory of our sins, consisting, indeed, of various individual parts, yet so that none by itself is strictly speaking the sacrifice. In each particular part the whole recurs, yet without these parts the whole cannot be conceived. The will of Christ to manifest his gracious condescension to us in the Eucharist forms no less an integral part of his great work than all besides, and in a way so necessary, indeed, that, whilst we here find the whole scheme of redemption reflected, without it the other parts would not have sufficed for our complete atonement. Who, in fact, would venture the assertion that the descent of the Son of God in the Eucharist belongs not to his general merits which are imputed to us? Hence the sacramental sacrifice is a true sacrifice, a sacrifice in the strict sense yet so that it must in no wise be separated from the other things which Christ hath achieved for us, as the very consideration of the end of its institution will clearly show. In this last portion, if we may so call it, of the great sacrifice for us, all the other parts are to be present and applied to us. In this last part of the objective sacrifice, the latter becomes subjective and appropriated to us. Christ on the cross is still an object strange to us. Christ in the Christian worship is our property, our victim. There he is the universal victim. Here he is the victim for us in particular, and for every individual among us. There he was only the victim. Here he is the victim acknowledged and revered. There the objective atonement was consummated. Here the subjective atonement is partly fostered and promoted partly expressed. The Eucharistic sacrifice, in conformity to its declared ends, may be considered under a twofold point of view. The Church in general, and every particular community within her, being founded by the sacrifice of the Son of God, and by faith in the same, and thus owing their existence to Him, the Eucharistic sacrifice must, in the first place, be regarded as one of praise and thanksgiving. In other words, the Church declares that she is incapable of offering up her thanks to God in any other way than by giving him back, who became the victim of the world. As if she were to say, quote, Thou didst, O Lord, for Christ's sake, look down with graciousness and compassion 
upon us as thy children, so vouchsafe that we, with grateful hearts, may revere thee as our Father in Christ, thy Son, here present. We possess naught else that we can offer thee, save Christ. Be graciously pleased to receive our sacrifice, unquote. While the community in the person of the priest performeth this, they confess perpetually what Christ became, and still continues to be, for its sake. It is not, however, the interior acts of thanksgiving, adoration, and gratitude which it offers up to God, but it is Christ himself present in the sacrament. These emotions of the soul are indeed excited, unfolded, kept up, and fostered by the presence and the self-sacrifice of the Savior but of themselves are deemed unworthy to be presented to God. Christ the victim, in our worship, is the copious, inexhaustible source of the deepest devotion. But, in order to be this, the presence of the Savior, sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, is necessarily required. A presence to which, as to an outward object, the interior soul of man must attach itself, and must unbosom all its feelings. The community, however, continually professes itself a sinner, needing forgiveness and striving ever more and more to appropriate to itself the merits of Christ. Now the sacrifice appears propitiatory, and the Redeemer present enables us to be entirely his own children, or to become so in an ever-increasing degree. The present Savior, in a voice audible to the spiritual-minded, incessantly addresses his Father above, quote, be graciously pleased to behold in me the believing and repentant people, unquote. And then he crieth to his brethren below, quote, Come to me, all you that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Each one who returneth to me with all his heart shall find mercy, forgiveness of sins, and every grace, unquote. Hence, in the liturgy of the Latin, as well as of the Greek church, it is rightly said, that it is Christ, who in the holy action offers himself up to God as a sacrifice. He is at once the victim and the high priest, but we, recognizing in the Eucharistic Christ, the same Christ, who, out of love for us, delivered himself unto death, even the death of the cross, exclaim, at the elevation of the host, wherever the Catholic Church extends, with that lively faith in his manifest mercy, from which humility, confidence, love, and repentance spring. Quote, o Jesus, for thee I live, for thee I die. O Jesus, thine I am, living or dead. Unquote. It is now evident to all that the belief of the real presence in Christ in the Eucharist forms the basis of our whole conception of the Mass. Without that presence, the solemnity of the Lord's Supper is a mere reminiscence of the sacrifice of Christ, exactly in the same way as the celebration by any society of the anniversary of some esteemed individual whose image it exhibits to view, or some other symbol, recalls to mind his beneficent actions. On the other hand, with faith in the real existence of Christ in the Eucharist, the past becomes the present. All that Christ hath merited for us and whereby he hath so merited it, is henceforth never separated from his person. He is present as that which he absolutely is, and in the whole extent of his actions, to wit, as the real victim. 
Hence the effects of this faith on the mind, the heart, and the will of man are quite other than if, by the mere stretch of the human faculty of memory, Christ be called back from the distance of eighteen hundred years. He himself manifests his love, his benevolence, his devotedness to us. He is ever in the midst of us, full of grace and truth. Accordingly, the Catholic Mass, considered as a sacrifice, is a solemnization of the blessings imparted to humanity by God in Christ Jesus, and is destined, by the offering up of Christ, partly to express in praise, thanksgiving, and adoration the joyous feelings of redemption on the part of the faithful, partly to make the merits of Christ the subject of their perpetual appropriation. It is also clear why this sacrifice is of personal utility to the believer, namely, because thereby pious sentiments such as faith, hope, love, humility, contrition, obedience, and devotion to Christ are excited, promoted, and cherished. The sacrifice presented to God, which as we have often said, is not separated from the work of Christ, merits internal grace for the culture of these sentiments, which are psychologically excited from without, by faith in the present Savior, whose entire actions and sufferings are brought before the mind, as according to Catholic doctrine, forgiveness of sins cannot take place without sanctification, and a fitting state of the human soul is required for the reception of grace, as well as an active concurrence towards the fructification of grace. The reflecting observer may already infer that it is not by a mere outward and bodily participation on the part of the community that the Mass produces any vague indeterminate effects. The sacrifice of the Mass is likewise offered up for the living and the dead. That is to say, God is implored, for the sake of Christ's oblation, to grant to all those who are dear to us whatever may conduce to their salvation. With Mass, accordingly, the faithful join the prayer that the merits of Christ, which are considered as concentrated in the Eucharistic sacrifices, should be applied to all needing them and susceptible of them. To consider merely himself is a matter of impossibility to the Christian. How much less, in so sacred a solemnity, can he think only of himself and omit his supplication that the merits of Christ, which outweigh the sins of the whole world, may likewise be appropriated by all? The communion with the happy and perfect spirits in Christ is also renewed, for they are one with Christ, and his work cannot be contemplated without its effects. Lastly, all the concerns of inward and outward life, sad and joyful events, good and ill fortune, are brought in connection with this sacrifice, and, at this commemoration in Christ, to whom we are indebted for the highest gifts, we pour out to God our thanksgivings and lamentations, and in Him and before Him we implore consolation and courage and strength under sufferings, self-denial, clemency, and meekness. In prosperity. Hitherto, however, we have considered the Mass merely as a sacrificial oblation, but this view by no means embraces its whole purport. The assembled congregation declares, from what we have stated, that in itself without Christ it discovers nothing, absolutely nothing, which can be agreeable to God. Nay, nothing but what is inadequate, earthly, and sinful. Renouncing itself, 
it gives itself up to Christ, full of confidence, hoping for his sake, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and every grace. In this act of self-renunciation, and of entire self-abandonment to God in Christ, the believer has, as it were, thrown off himself, excommunicated himself, if I may so speak, in his existence, is separated from Christ, in order to live only by him and in him. Hence, he is in a state to enter into the most intimate fellowship with Christ, to communicate with him and with his whole being, to be entirely absorbed in him. For the unseemliness of the congregation no longer communicating every Sunday, as was the case in the primitive church, and of the priest in the mass, usually receiving alone the body of the Lord, is not to be laid to the blame of the church, for all the prayers and the holy sacrifice presuppose the sacramental communion of the entire congregation, but it is to be ascribed solely to the tepidity of the greater part of the faithful. Yet are the latter earnestly exhorted to participate, at least spiritually, in communion of the priest, and in this way to enter into the fellowship of Christ. Who will not call such a worship most Christian, most pious and real, a worship wherein God is adored in spirit and in truth? Indeed, how can a carnal-minded man, who will not believe in the incarnation of the Son of God, for the most powerful obstacle to this belief, is in the fact that man clearly perceives he must be of a godly way of thinking, so soon as he avows that God has become man. How can such a man look upon the Mass as other than mere foolishness? The Mass comprises an ever-recurring invitation to the confession of our sins and our own weakness and helplessness. It is a living representation of the infinite love and compassion of God towards us, which he hath revealed, and daily still reveals, in the delivering up of his only begotten Son. And therefore it contains the most urgent exhortations to endless thanksgivings, to effective mutual love, and to our heavenly glorification. Hence, an adversary to such a worship must be one whose thoughts creep exclusively on the earth, or who, of the whole act, understands naught else but that the priest turns sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left, and is clothed in a motley-colored garment. On the other hand, he who misapprehends the wants of man and the high objects of our divine Redeemer in the establishment of the sacraments, he who, like the Manicheans, rejects the sacraments as coarse, sensual institutions and follows the track of a false spirituality, will regard the Catholic dogma as incomprehensible. In the opinion of such a man, a worship is in the same degree spiritual as it is untrue. He lays before his God the lofty conceptions that have sprung out of the fullness of his intellectual powers, his holy feelings and inflexible resolves. These have no reference to the outward historical Christ, but only to the ideal one, which is merged in the subjectivity of those feelings and ideas. While yet, by the fact of the external revelation of the Logos, internal worship must needs obtain a perpetual outward basis, and, in truth, one representing the word as delivered up to suffering, because it was under the form of a self-sacrifice for the sins of the world, that this manifestation occurred. How, on the other hand, anyone who has apprehended the full meaning of the incarnation of the deity, and who with joy confesses that his duty is the reverse, namely, to pass from seeming to real and divine existence, 
and has accordingly attained to the perception that the doctrine of a forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, of an exaltation of man unto God, and of a communication of divine life to him, through our Lord, must remain unprofitable until it be brought before us in concrete forms, and be made to bear on our most individual relations. How anyone, I say, who clearly perceives all this, can refuse to revere in the Catholic Mass a divine institution, I am utterly at a loss to conceive. After this exposition, we are probably now enabled to give a satisfactory solution to the chief objection which the Protestant communities have urged against the Catholic sacrifice of the Mass. It is argued that by the Mass, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is abolished, or that, at any rate, it receives a detriment, since the latter is considered as incomplete and needing a supplement. Now it is self-evident that the sacrifice of the Mass, by keeping the oblation of Christ on the cross, or rather his whole ministry and sufferings, eternally present, presupposes the same, and in its whole purport maintains the same, and so far from obliterating, it stamps them more vividly on the minds of men, and instead of supplying the bloody sacrifice of the cross with some heterogeneous element, it brings that sacrifice in its true integrity and original vitality to bear the most individual application and appropriation throughout all ages. It is one and the same undivided victim, one and the same high priest, who on the Mount of Calvary and on our altars hath offered himself up as an atonement for the sins of the world. But, as this view is so obvious, and as the Reformers nevertheless constantly repeated their objections, and impressed them so strongly on the minds of their followers, that down to the present day they are repeated, something deeply rooted in the constitution of Protestantism itself seems to lurk under these objections, and requires to be dragged to light. The decisive, conscious, undoubting faith that Christ before our eyes offers himself up for us to his eternal Father is quite calculated to produce an effect piercing into the inmost heart of man, far below the deepest roots of evil, so that sin in its inmost germ should be plucked from the will, and that the believer be unable to refuse to consecrate his life to God. This ordinance of divine compassion necessarily leads, along with others, to the doctrine of internal justification. As, on the other hand, the Mass must be rejected with a sort of instinct wherever that doctrine is repudiated. If such great and living manifestations of the Redeemer's grace be unable thoroughly to purify the heart of man, if they be incapable of moving us to heartfelt gratitude and mutual love, to the most unreserved self-sacrifice, and to the supplication that God would accept the oblation of ourselves, then we may, with reason, despair of our sanctification, and abandon ourselves to a mere theory of imputation. Now, perhaps we may understand the full sense of the prayer which the Catholic at the elevation of the host utters to his Savior. Quote, to thee let my whole life be consecrated. Unquote. Yet it ought not to be overlooked that the reformers might be led into error through various and some extremely scandalous abuses, especially in unspiritual, dry, mechanical performance and participation in this most mysterious function. Moreover, in default of historical learning, 
the high antiquity and apostolic origin of the holy sacrifice was unknown to them, if it cannot even be denied that their whole system, when regarded from one point of view, should have led them rather zealously to uphold than to disapprove of the sacrificial worship. Yet they instinctively felt that, in that worship, there lay something infinitely more profound than all the doctrinal foundations of their own theological system. And, accordingly, they were driven by an unconscious impulse into a negative course. There are now some particulars which remain to be considered. The doctrine of the change of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ occupies an important place in the Catholic system of theology. Who doth not immediately think of that true, moral change which must take place in man so soon as he enters into communion with Christ, when the earthly man ceases and the heavenly one begins, so that not we, but Christ liveth in us? In the Lord's Supper, Luther could not find Christ alone. Bread and wine ever recurred to his mind, because in the will of the regenerated in Christ, he saw a permanent dualism, a perpetual coexistence of a spiritual and a carnal inclination, so that the latter, evil principle in man, could never be truly converted into the former. Moreover, the doctrine of transubstantiation is the clearest representation of the objectivity of the food of the soul offered to us in the sacraments, and if we may dare to speak of the internal motives of the divine economy, we should affirm that, by this transubstantiation, wrought through a miracle of God's omnipotence, the strongest barrier is raised against any false subjective opinion. This doctrine, which most undoubtedly was at all times prevalent in the church, though at one time more clearly, at another less clearly, expressed, according as occasion seemed to require, was, in the Middle Age, laid down as a formal dogma, at a period when a false pantheistic mysticism, which we have elsewhere described, confounded the distinction between the human and the divine, and identified the Father with the world, the Son of God with the eternal idea of man, and the Holy Ghost with religious feelings. Several Gnostic sects, and afterwards Amalric of Chartres and David of Dinant, inculcated these errors. They regarded the historical revelation of God in Christ Jesus as a self-revelation of man, and the sacraments were, therefore, in the eyes of these people, not else than what man chose of himself to attribute to them. Hence they rejected them as useless, and identifying with God the energies of the world, they conceived it singular that those powers, which in themselves were thoroughly divine, should receive, from any external cause, a divine nature of property. In this juncture of time, it appeared necessary to point out more clearly than had been done at any previous period the primitive doctrine that had been handed down, and to set it in the strongest light with all the consequences deducible from it. The doctrine of a change of substance and created powers to be applied as a divine and sanctifying nourishment of the spirit most clearly established the opposition of Christianity to the fundamental tenet of these sects, which took so much pleasure in the world as to confound it with the divinity. Failing to observe that, through the creative energy of the Redeemer, only could a new world be called into existence, and that, consequently, it was impossible for him to be engendered by the world. Moreover, out of the general movement of the age sprang a peculiar form of the most solemn adoration of the Eucharist, 
festum corporis Christi, so that it should no longer be possible to confound the internal acts of the human mind with the historical Christ. For, by the very nature of the festival, Christ was represented as extraneous to man, and neither as one in himself with us, nor as evolved out of us, but as coming to us only from without. In the doctrine of transubstantiation, Christianity with its entire essence exhibits itself as an external, immediate, divine revelation. At the period of the Reformation, therefore, it was the more necessary to bring out this doctrine and the ecclesiastical rites connected with it in the most prominent form as an empty, erroneous spiritualism was everywhere manifesting itself. Lastly, in the Catholic Church, the custom prevails of receiving communion only under one kind, a matter, as is evident, belonging to discipline and not to doctrine. It is well known that this custom was not first established by any ecclesiastical law, but, on the contrary, it was, in consequence of the general prevalence of the usage, that this law was passed in approval of it. It is a matter of no less notoriety that the monasteries in whose center this rite has had its rise, had thence spread in ever wider circles, were led by a very nice sense of delicacy to impose on themselves this privation. A pious dread of desecrating, by spilling, and the like, even in the most conscientious ministration, the form of the sublimest and the holiest, whereof the participation can be vouchsafed to man, was the feeling which swayed their minds. Some may hold this opinion for superstitious, and, according as they see in the consecrated elements but mere material species, the more easily will such an opinion occur to their minds. But the Catholic who, even in this formality, proves that it was not with him a mere matter of form when he abstains from the consecrated chalice, and who, taught by examples in Scripture, or, at any rate, by the authority of the primitive church, thinks himself justified in so abstaining, without becoming alienated from the spirit of Jesus Christ, or losing any portion of his Eucharistic blessings, the Catholic, we say, rejoices that though in his church there may be men of a perhaps exaggerated scrupulosity, yet none are found so carnal-minded as to desire to drink in the communion not the holy blood, but the mere wine, and often, on that account, protest, among other things, against what they call a mutilation of the ordinance of Christ. We regret the more to be obliged to call the attention of our separated brethren to this abuse in their church, as we must add that the number of those in their communion is not less considerable who forego the partaking of the sacred blood, not from any spiritual dread of desecrating it by spilling, but from a mere sensual feeling of disgust at the uncleanliness of those with whom they are to drink out of the same cup. When even the Zwinglians complain of this mutilation, they, who have taken away the body with the blood of Christ, and left in the room of them, mere bread and mere wine, it is difficult not to think of the passage in Holy Writ, wherein the Redeemer reproaches the Pharisees, that they strain at gnats while swallowing camels. However, we should rejoice, if it were left free to each one, to drink or not, of the consecrated chalice, and this permission would be granted, if with the same love and concord a universal desire were expressed for the use of the cup, as, from the twelfth century, the contrary wish has been announced. 
End of section 36.